Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. And the 2019 World Tour season is underway. Daryl Impey of Mitchelton Scott taking first victory of the year in the Tour Down Under, which was, as always, a bit like the first day of term, with some new faces, new teams, new names and new uniforms. And one of the standout uniforms of the season is the pink and blue tie-dye of EF Education First. Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined from Melbourne by Mike Woods of the team. Mike, how was your Tour Down Under? It was an okay experience. Um, I mean, in terms of life, it was super fun. I went down to Australia early with my wife, also with Lachlan Morton and his wife, Rachel. And uh, we had a really nice time in Australia and uh, trained super hard. And I was really happy with how I executed in the race. However, uh, I went for the win on the last stage, uh, tried to follow uh, Richie Port, and in doing so, blew to the moon and got passed by a number of guys and ended up uh, seventh. Uh, so a bit disappointed just because I wanted to, you know, uh, achieve a higher position, but at the same time, uh, happy with how I, I kind of went for the win and, and how I raced all week. And that last stage, uh, stage six to uh, going up uh, Wollonga Hill, wasn't it? Um, that, that, that looked like a pretty uh, brutal stage, especially in the heat. It wasn't too bad, actually. Uh, down under relative to the rest of the World Tour races is by, just by the, not just by the numbers, but I mean, the heat does certainly play a factor, but it, it's not nearly as draining. I, I couldn't believe how uh, refreshed I was and feeling good after each stage. And now having done several Grand Tours, this was the first time I did, I've done Down Under since doing a, a Grand Tour. Uh, I felt like by the end of it, I was just getting started. Uh, one of the things you did uh, in your sort of uh, warm-up period when you were down there was spending a lot of time uh, kind of practicing the, the main part of um, stage four, the climb up Corkscrew Hill. Can you t- tell us about what you did there? I'm a really big believer in visualization. I think that uh, replicating hard efforts, uh, efforts that are similar to... What, how a race actually plays out, and especially efforts on the actual terrain that you're racing on, really um, enables you to have that 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 advantage in in a race. Uh, and I'm really also fortunate to have a great coach and who, who who also like believes the same thing. So we used uh, one of my main sponsors this year, uh, B210, uh, to 
get me to do a camp pre-race in Australia. And uh, my big target for the whole week was going to be corkscrew just because it's a climb that's super steep. A steeper climb often favors me. And I wanted to do as many reps as I possibly could before the race just so I could visualize it, so I could get an idea of where I wanted to make a move on it, but also to be able to go on a bit of an attack in the descent afterwards. Uh, so I was even doing interval intervals where I'd go straight into the descent, post hitting the lap button, and uh, try and uh, stay as safe as possible, but uh, go down as fast as possible. And how did that work out for you? It went well. I, I was hoping to get a bit, a bit more separation on corkscrew, however... I did still manage to attack exactly where I'd hoped to, but Richie, uh, Well Powell's, and George Bennett were were strong enough to follow. But I think just the preparation, the preparation on the descent really did help me. I felt like I was, uh, I just I was descending the best in the group on that on that descent, and yeah, I thought I think I think it it, it did pay off quite well. I just would have liked to have how to stay away for the, the final sprint in, in the end. Now, the the first race of the year is always kind of a bit like first day at school, uh, new faces, new teams, you know, different kits and everything. From a first day at school perspective, we I showed up looking fly. <laughs> Just a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, excitement around having RAF on board, having EF on board, and also just uh, excitement uh, that's, was built off of my previous season. Uh, I, I finally feel as though I'm now able to um, position well and 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 place myself uh, well enough to really let my my natural uh, abilities uh, show in races, and um, it makes racing a lot more fun. So I, I was I was a lot more excited about this race than in past years. Do you know what the rest of your schedule for the year looks like? What are the big targets? For me, the big targets are certainly the Ardennes Classics. And then if I have enough gas at the end of the season, uh, the the Italian Classics. I would like to do one or two Grand Tours in there, uh, but uh, still nothing set in stone from a Grand Tour perspective. However, it's it, for me right now, it's a, a big focus on those Ardennes. I just love racing the Ardennes. I like, I like the history behind them. And... I think they're just such cool races. You're going to be in Australia until February, um, and they've got a bit of a heat wave down there at the moment. Um, it's going to be a bit of a shock to come back to a European uh, winter, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I've done, I've now done the Australian races twice, and then come back to to Girona and and Spain, and uh, had yeah, just a bit of a tough transition. I think it's one of the toughest. Uh, jet lakes to get over just because you're coming from summer back to the darker winter colder temperatures if you really want to have success at these races you do have to train hard quite quite hard before i, I always find because of the jet lag and because of that hard training that you, you did before you you kind of actually have to take a break and so my plan is to after uh i get back from australia to take a week completely off hang out with my wife chill a bit and just kind of hit the reset button and uh, start building towards Catalonia. The the break that you normally take though, when you when you stop ra- when you stop racing after down under, means that you're going to go a bit slower when you do your first world tour race again in Europe, and you kind of feel like a moped merging onto a freeway. But uh, it's it's a good way. It's a, it's it's necessary if you want to be going well at the uh, the Ardennes later on. You mentioned uh, EF education first and the new kit from Rafa. There also seems to be a bit of a new ethos around the team that's different to other pro teams this year. Can you explain a bit 
more about that? Yeah, certainly. I think uh, there there's a there are a lot of a lot of factors uh, involved in that, but I think the biggest is we're not we're really expressing kind of who we are as riders. I think this team's always been a, a team filled with characters and interesting people that are unique uh, that don't necessarily fit the mold of your typical cyclist. Uh, myself being one of those, especially now with this focus on doing events that are outside the norm of cycling, uh, really uh, only gets to maximize those characters more. And I, I, I feel really excited about it just because uh, I think we're, we're tapping into something that is, is new and, and interesting and dynamic. And, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, and what sort of events are you going to be doing outside the, outside the Pro Tour, as it were? I think it's going to have to do a lot to depend on, on the schedule, um, just because I am one of the uh, guys that's going to be needed to, to chase after uh, UCI World Tour points. However, uh, I have put my hand up for lead, a race like Leadville. I'd like to do Leadville. There's also some gravel racing in Canada that I'd, I'd love to do later in the season. But uh, for me, the big like even when I'm in the off season, I'm all often mountain biking and doing long gravel rides. And uh, even if it's just you know being able to join a big group ride that does something cool or interesting, or even go for a, a longer trek with Lock with Lockie uh, throughout the season, I think. Uh, just would be a, a real treat. Because your athletic background was first sort of ice hockey, and then you were a pretty good runner, weren't you? H- how did you end up in pro cycling? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why. Another reason why I'm excited about this whole that this, this uh, move towards an alternate calendar, because I I got involved in cycling just by stealing my dad's bike to to cross train uh, while I was injured during running, and. When I was injured as a runner, I was constantly uh, running. In, when I was trying to run, I was running in pain, and it just became this source of displeasure and and anxiety. And when I finally was going stealing my dad's bike and going for these rides, it was liberating. It was like it was cathartic, and I fell in love with just the the process of getting on a bike and going out and exploring. I I was in Ottawa at the time, Ottawa, Canada, and at that time, because I was a runner, I only knew, you know, 10 kilometers, what was within 10, 15 kilometers of my house, because that's all I ran, whereas when I got on the bike, all of a sudden, I started discovering all these new places outside of Ottawa, and new roads, and yeah, it was just this really enjoyable thing where I was just riding and, and, and staying physically fit. Uh, and that's how I got into the sport, and that's what I love most about the sport. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier on the kit. Um, you certainly stand out in the peloton this season, don't you? Yeah, I think we were super cool. Again, it kind of taps into that those unique individuals on the team. We look unique. It's a flashy kit. My bike's sitting in my room right now because I, I snuck out today and, and rode out to the beach. Yeah, I'm looking at the hotel room right now, and it just looks good. Uh, I'm excited to to just get on it. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm really proud of the kit and I'm really happy to be wearing it. Okay, well, Mike, thanks for joining us on the podcast and uh, good luck to you and the rest of the team for the rest of the season. No problem. Th- thanks for having me. Mike Woods of EF Education First. Nick Craig is a legendary name in British off-road racing, multiple national cyclocross and mountain bike champion, three times winner of the Three Peaks race in Yorkshire and now a World Masters champion. 
Two years ago, his son Charlie, a very promising young bike racer, died from a heart attack aged just 15, inspiring the Ride for Charlie Fund, which supports young off-road riders and works to raise awareness of heart issues in young people. Rulerzi and Cleverly caught up with him. Nick, Three Peaks cyclocross race. Um, It's always been billed as the toughest cyclocross race in the world, but uh, a lot of people probably don't know what it involves. Uh, Fill us in on the details, if you will. It's an event that started in 1960. Uh, John Rawnsley um, was the the first winner and the organiser. There's quite a bit of history that I probably need to read a book on to to understand why the Three Peaks. Three Peaks is um, in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, It's Ingleborough, Pennygent and Wernside uh, in various orders over the years. Um, I think it used to go up Pennygent first and it now finishes on Pennygent last. So the term cyclocross race, it's... It's a race. It's one. It's one on its own. You 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 ride in on the road one minute, then you walking, carrying, lifting, carrying your bike over stiles, and then you riding your bike in a really inappropriate place, which would be something more akin to riding a 150 mil travel mountain bike in the modern world. And mountain bikes didn't exist in the 60s, and that's what we. Uh, that's. Yeah, somebody came up with the idea that we could take a, a bike over the three peaks. The sport of cyclocross, if um, if you don't know it, is a one-hour um, event, so it wasn't that hard to uh, justify it being the toughest cyclocross race in the world. I haven't thoroughly checked the history books, but I think I'll be right in saying that your father, Ian, 1963 winner, and yourselves would be the only two generational winners of the race um my dad rode cyclocross then he had a family and he he stopped riding bikes and uh, he introduced me to it and three peaks was one of the events one of the first events i went to see and he was riding it again um and he yeah some dads take the sons to the football ground and walk them through and say you'll support this team forever once you walk through this gate and he didn't say anything like that to me. He just put the sport in front of me, and um, I, I, I loved it. I was addicted to it straight away. I've got to say, you know, as a disclaimer from me, like the Three Peaks is my absolute favourite race that I've ever ridden. Um, but I remember going to do my first one. I had this sort of ludicrous idea that I should do running training. But the only person I've ever seen actually running is the Rob Jeb, who's won it ten times, I think. No, I've said it a few times to people. The people, I want to do Three Peaks. I can ride a bike and I do some running races it's not what it is you, I, I won the three peaks without running anywhere you're power walking you're right, Rob Jeb um, as a, you know, it, it, an event over 20 miles a running event over 20 miles that's what he does mm. he's a strong bike rider um, he's a very strong bike rider and he, you know, the two things together make him a very good three peaks racer so you're First one at the peaks was in '91, yeah, and then there's like an 18-year gap until your next win. What happened in the middle? Well, from the age of 16, I raced it. Uh, my dad was still racing it then, and I I wanted to win it, and it was an event that you know I'd, I'd had some reasonable riding. I think I'd had a 40th and. One year I got lucky and maybe got a top 20. 
and then this sport of mountain biking arrived in the UK and it probably arrived in the UK around 86 or 7 um, I got involved with it in 89 and from being a cyclocross racer that was filling the summer in with some tracks, some roads, some criteriums um, the sport of mountain biking came along so I got the opportunity in 1991 to turn professional as a mountain bike racer but the one thing that uh, I had quite a tough season the first year and I was wondering whether I was doing the right thing um, health wasn't too good I was always tired and run down and the manager Simon Burney at the time said to me I'd like you to finish the season off and um, try and win the three peaks um, and the three peaks was actually the Sunday before the mountain bike world champs in Il Choco in Italy where I'd been selected for downhill and cross country so um, but he, what he said to me was you need to you need a win you need something for your own confidence and I think you can win the three peaks so that's what I did. Well, the mountain bike scene in the nineties was pretty darn healthy in the UK. I mean, you could you could make a living out of it. Yeah, it's not like um, you know, it's it, it's not like road cycling is now. Not the modern day cycling, but it was. Um, I I I made a living that was um, doing something that I love doing, and um, you know, I've not. Um, I can't retire, but I can. Um, I'm, I'm certainly. Uh, I can look back over a career of um, doing what I love doing. And um, I met somebody just last week, um, and they just said, "You've never done a day's work in your life," and that's not quite true. <laughs> but it's, I've never done a day's work in my life that I didn't want to do, which is quite unusual. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm happy with that. And then in between all, all that, of course, there's the multiple cyclocross championships. Yeah, I won the elite um, cyclocross uh, three times, um, three years apart, and I won the mountain bike elite national champs three times, three years apart. I like a three-year gap. Hmm. So. Um, it's you know it was a, the nineties were a really healthy time like you said there was good sponsorship that meant good riders so the Brits we had a really good you know we had a super strong uh, competition in all the national races we had the likes of Barry Clark and Gary Ford um, David Baker Tim Gould you know Fred Salmon there was lots of good riders and we all pushed each other on correct me if I'm wrong did you go to the Sydney Olympics just to do the mountain biking and then got called in to do the road race as well. Yeah, so what happened there was I, I got made the selection for Sydney and you know, to the opportunity to go and race in the Olympic Games I was you know, I was absolutely made up. But the night before the mountain bike race, which was on the Sunday, um the coaches took me to one side and said, you know, there's that you've been requested to if you want to, to support the the road guys and race the road race. They think you'd be really useful in the first part of the race. And I think that was off the back of the success of Peter Keane's programme where they'd just won all the medals in the team pursuit and um, they had a track World Cup or World Championships back in Manchester so it meant a few of the riders needed to get back home. And uh, Max Schiandri, who was Italian, British and bronze medalist in Atlanta mm-hmm. in the road, um, was racing and they basically the whole team was built around 
him trying to get a medal and to win the Olympic road race. So my job was the first hour. First hour only? That was officially the first hour. Rob Hales was supposed to take the second hour. Um, it was, I absolutely loved it. You know, I, I didn't have any road shoes. I only had my mountain bike shoes with me, so I rode on mountain bike pedals. I only had my mountain bike helmet, which had a little peak on it. Um, so I rode in that, and that got a few funny looks. Obviously, it doesn't fit the aero of today. Um, and I've never done... I've done a few stage races, and I've done some races, but not at that super high level. And the Olympic road race was 270 kilometres long, and they work it... They, they start at 20 mile an hour. It was a 14k lap, and they go at one mile an hour every every lap. And it that's just happens naturally. Mm. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. The first few laps, all Max Giandri said was mark every Italian, which was Bettini and all these, you know, the old, the old guard of the Italian world of the Giro and the Tour de France. And, you know, I was mixing it with Richard Veronk and Lance Armstrong, Ulrich, and all those guys were in there. And it was just like, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Hmm. And... I was given the opportunity to stay at the front because I was to mark all these Italians. So um, I did that for my hour. Rob Hales came alongside me after about an hour, and I think he was five minutes late, and said to me, uh, nice work, Craigie, you know, um, enjoy your ride on the back now. I'll take over. And he went into the corner into, uh, I think we came out of Centennial Park and dropped down to Bondi Beach, and he went into the first corner and smashed into the barriers. So... I had to make my way back to the front and I did I rode in there for a bit longer I did about two and a half hours but the tank finally emptied but yeah a great experience 2001 you couldn't do any mountain biking because of the foot and mouth outbreak yeah so that's fine you just do something else you know just do crossroads and you know the the term gravel now which is you know it's it, it, it's a, a name and a sport that's been kind of created in in America and it's you know you've got this whole you know the roads are getting dangerous it's getting traffic's getting heavier people seem to be busier doing other things other than steering and changing gear and the more and more i think about it the more and more i want to spend time riding on disused railways canal towpaths and going out where i used to ride on a cross bike i'd now take a, a gravel I've, I've actually got a specific gravel bike and you say well what's the difference i've got a flared bar so the drops are a bit wider at the bottom um a bit more control and it tips the 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 levers i can brake a bit easier um and i've got a, you know gravel i've got like a, a g1 tire on there so i've got a file tread tire and i i take it where i would normally take a mountain bike and it's it's a different experience I, th- I think there was a lot of uh, scepticism about the whole idea or the term of gravel bikes especially from the old cross community when they first came out it was like well hang on it's just a cross bike what are you talking about but there is a difference you know they are specifically designed for what they do yeah you want you know you want a, a reasonable size air volume so you want a reasonable size tyre um, the gearing slightly different um, I actually live in the peak districts so I live in the high peak area so I, I do need the lower gears but if you get onto a road section you also need the higher gear so you know the, the fact that you can have a 10 sprocket on the back that goes to a 42 in a cassette now and um, a single ring at the front I can ride 
just swinging it back to three peaks I now ride a single chain ring on on the uh, on the three peaks and so does Paul Oldham and I think Rob Jeb does as well so it's you know it it, it works it's simple you know and it, it's uh, it's a it's a great um, a great way of riding off road because we can you know I can ride Penigant which is the final the, the main difference with the three peaks over the years is they've done a lot of erosion control so what used to be climbing in and out of a peak bog every 50 meters is now a gravel path and that gravel path you can ride it if you've got a low enough gear good balance and some skills it's no good just putting the low gears on and thinking you'll be able to ride up there people often ask me what gear do I need what ratio do I need and I always say you need one to one plus one so I would ride a 38 chain ring at the front and a 42 cassette at the back but at the same time I've got a 10 sprocket so I can I can still go at 28 mile an hour on the road if I need to if the wind's behind me and I've got someone to chase like Rob Jeb. Moving right up to this season um, you've just claimed your first rainbow jersey. Well it was something that I wasn't sure having been a, a full-time bike rider for 15 years and then carried on racing I wasn't sure Masters World Championship was something I would ever want to do I kind of talked to a few people Paul Oldham was you know Paul Oldham who's won the three peaks the last three times or maybe four times actually um, and beats Jabby kept saying to him come on let's have a let's have a road trip and we'll go and do you know let's go and smash this uh, Masters Worlds and with the categories, for some reason with the UCI category Masters, you turn into the next category at 49, not 50. Yeah, I was going to say, because you're 49. I was going to ask how that worked. Yeah, so I just went and did it. And it was in, uh, in Mol in Belgium, which is a very sandy it's race. Sand. Yeah. Um, I don't, I've not really done much racing in sand. And I found it, we, we arrived there, me and Paul, and I found it really, really difficult. I never, Paul just couldn't believe... I'd beaten Paul the week before and Paul just couldn't believe that he was taking 150 metres out of me every time we hit a sand, uh, sand pit in the, in the lap. So in the end, I just said to him, Paul, don't wait for me. I'm, I'm struggling and he just couldn't believe it. So um, within three laps, I'd got the better of it. And Paul said, You've, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anybody learn how to do something so quick. And I felt a bit more confident. At the same time, I was really tired because we'd... Would smack, you know, riding in sand is ridiculously hard. Um, and you, when you lose your momentum and it starts to go wrong and you, you fall out of the rut, it becomes really difficult and it goes wrong really quickly. So mm. that's why when you see the cross races with falling over, you know, the best pros in the world are falling over. And you, if you see uh, Van Ertz and Van der Poel, the way they ride those sand pits, those guys have got power, momentum and and skills beyond um, but the one thing I will say is the more power you've got and the bigger your engine the easier it is because you've got momentum so you notice as the, the masters get older it becomes more of a running race in the sand yeah. and there's an etiquette in cyclocross of the pros if they can't ride the rut they'll get out of the rut and run in the sand um, they wouldn't run in the rut but at the masters world's you're running the rut to destroy the rut for the person behind you. <laughs> it's totally the opposite. So uh, it's really interesting that the pros wouldn't do that. I love all that, that trickery and skullduggery that goes on in cross racing. Like that, you know, there's a mate of mine that taught me how to stall at the top of a little incline so the person behind you falls off. 
I couldn't bring myself to do it, but he would do it on a regular basis. You know, you know. Yeah, you never mean to do it; it just happens. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> never with intent. But yeah, the and the the Masters Worlds as well. They do um, they do the grid in random, which is you know the. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. Um, so there were sixty three in the event, and they post the night before um, the list goes up on the door at you know seven o'clock at night and. I'm number 57, uh, 63 on row nine, so I was on the back row, and it it was yeah I, I just uh, well I, yeah I just got on with it because that's why you know I'd gone there to do it and I I just decided that I'd just find my way through. Uh, it took one full lap, but I uh, I made the the connection with the guy that I think he won it the previous year, so. Um, Darren Atkins from the UK came third as well. He got the bronze medal. Um, he's, he was really happy with that. So we had a we had a good uh, a good a good race. So we're sitting here with a, a very specially painted Scott bike over there. Is that is that the one you rode at Mull or not? No, that that was a bike that the uh, the guys in Switzerland at Scott just took me to one side at a sales meeting and said we've got something for you. They asked me if I'd ride a gravel ten. Uh, Scott Gravel 10 bike uh, in the Three Peaks um, which I agreed to I said yeah I'd love to have a specific bike with flare bars and a few little tweaks to it um, and the colour for the 2019 bike was a metallic gold and um, Frank took me to one side he's a product manager and he said um, he opened the box and there was a sort of a mustard yellow metallic and he said it's a colour we didn't actually go with but it, it's yours we want you to have it if you can use it and I looked at it and I explained that um, we'd you know we would like to uh, I'd like to make a really special bike and dedicate it in memory of Charlie Fat Creations painted it you said it took 80 hours um, of work I think, give or uh, 60 60, Sorry, 60 yeah. to 70 hours of, yeah. of um, paint work they've uh, completely layered up all this Artwork. We sent photographs of Charlie. All the things that Charlie loved. He's, he was fishing, his mini bikes, his racing, his touring. All the things that he loved. And um, I'm sorry you can't see it on a podcast, but um, it's. Oh, we'll, we'll put a photo up on the uh, on yeah. the podcast page, listeners. Yeah, and it's you know the if you if you see the photographs on the bike, those photographs were then um, laid by the wonderful Bex, and she knife cut and layered every single one individually and it that's why it took so long and then al did his amazing amazing job and underneath is a the hashtag ride for charlie um it's got the website on there www.rideforcharlie.com on the back it's got the rich mitch um rich mitch did an amazing design of charlie so that's on the head tube and it's just yeah it's wonderful it's a, a bike that i raced at the three peaks and um i'll ride it again at the three peaks and it's been two years since Charlie died. Obviously, not everyone's going to be familiar with his story and what happened. So, yeah, Charlie uh, <coughs> Charlie was a fit, healthy racing bike rider. He actually uh, <coughs> he wasn't old enough to do the three peaks, but he, uh, he ran in 20, uh, 2016, he ran over Penny Gant with Sarah, my wife, and uh, he, he ran... Uh, he was going to run Ingleborough and he was going to run Wernside, so there's three, the three peaks. Um, <clears throat> but unfortunately, he, uh, he went to sleep and didn't wake up. 
And this is from an undiagnosed heart condition? Um, well, no. The <clears throat> He had no symptoms. Um, Charlie, because of the cardiac risk in the young, uh, which is CRY, or if anybody doesn't know what CRY is, if, you've got a, a 40, if you're 14 to 35, you can go on the CRY website and get a, a screening for the heart. It's a takes... 10 minutes um it's free and you can they're all over the country and usually in memory of somebody that's died young too young um the main places in st george's in london the hospital where it's ran from it's ran from an nhs hospital where they've agreed over the last 20 years through research that you know youngsters dying of a hidden um heart defect because one in 300 um, have a, a heart defect that could potentially be life-threatening and don't know. So they can detect this by a 12-lead test. If they find something that's, you know, if they see something that isn't quite right, they will do further tests, echocardiograms and on to other other tests to, and, you know, somebody could be told that they need an operation, they need some work done, or they may even be told that they can't do sport. Um, Were you surprised when you heard that number, one in 300? Yeah. Because that, that just sort of took me aback slightly. It's a lot, um, yeah. and it's not a lot of people know about it. It's, great, mm. it's gaining more momentum because in the UK, I think we're about 60 million people, and there are 12 deaths a week in that age bracket. And most, um, <clears throat> 80% of under 18-year-olds that have... Um, heart issues don't get symptoms so you know somebody of our age we get a warning we get signs we get you know people get a chance Mm. and uh, it's quite common not to get a chance um in charlie's case it's very difficult because um they they took his for research they take his heart and you know 15 20 years ago this would have never happened goes to a professor and they get they, they give a really thorough investigation into why um, why Charlie died at 15 and, uh, with his, as far as we knew and he knew there was nothing wrong with him mm-hmm. um, they couldn't find a very obvious um, cause for his death and you know adrenaline, noradrenaline adverse reaction was the conclusion and um, we don't know if a cry test would have saved Charlie but what I would highly recommend is that any 14 year old whether you do sport or not you should get one of those tests and you know people have raised a lot of money for Charlie in his memory so there's you know enough to get a lot of tests done through just through Charlie's legacy and that's where the Ride for Charlie so the Ride for Charlie fund uh, hashtag Ride for Charlie on Instagram uh, there's a Ride for Charlie page on if you Google that I yeah, there's a, there's a Facebook page, but there's a website, www.rideforcharlie.com. On there, it tells the full story about what Charlie did, why he did it, and his ethos, you know, his uh, passion for life. His passion for everything. Yeah, yeah. Nick Craig, talking to Rouleur's executive editor, Ian Cleverly.
So it's time to catch up with uh, Ruler's Desire Editor, Stuart Clapp. Uh, new edition out in the shops and uh, dropping through people's letterboxes, 19.1. Uh, what's in it on the Desire front, Stuart? Uh, loads of nice stuff, as per usual. Um, they're Cannondale, the new Aero one, uh, System 6. Um, this is in terms of bikes. What else did we put in there for this one? The 3T Strada Due. What's that? Well, well, you know, do you remember the Aqua Blue bike that... Um, People had a little, little bit of an issue with it. Um, although I think sometimes a bloke on the club run might have different um, ideas about what he needs from a bike from someone racing in the pro peloton. That was very diplomatic, wasn't it? Yeah, we got that. So that now, they've now done it as a two bike. So you can have it. It's not, as my mate Adam put it, a track bike with gears anymore. It's got, it's a proper, it's, it looks the business, actually. I think they've made a cracking job of it. It looks great. It looks really good. In fact, it's still at my house. Hopefully they forget about it and I can ride around on it all year. Yeah, we've got that. And the uh, Colnago concept, the aero bike, I thought it was interesting because it's, 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 it's a new bike that we've had in that has come with rim brakes. Everything else has been coming with in with disc recently, especially the high-end stuff. Um, and this has come in, obviously, very high-end bike with rim brakes still. And it looks the business. And I've, I've got a theory on, on rim brakes at the moment, right? You know how I'm pretty, I'm pretty much a Luddite, to be honest. But there are some bikes that look better with disc brakes. If you look at an aero bike, it actually looks better with disc brakes on. But if you look at one of these dainty sort of, I don't know, like a Factor 02 or something like that, I think it looks much nicer with a rim brake. Right, I've just fed the trolls. Crack on, <laughs> right? So, um, so yeah, this, but this, this Colnago with rim brakes looks absolutely. It looks looks a business. We've got that, and then a load of um, a load of kit in from uh, Pistelli. Who else sent us kit? Loads. And then we've got um, Hydroptics did uh, brought over a, a pretty much a, a pair of dipped sunglasses that they do for any occasion. There's loads of stuff, but it was quite a cool one because it was kind of. We got let down on a venue last minute, so I had to come up with something over the Christmas period because we shot this just after Christmas. And um, we shot it in this old theatre, which is haunted. The location that we used before was supposed to be haunted as well. So I'm going for a haunted theme now. I'm only going to do on shoots where, um, where, where there's been the sighting of a ghost. Now, later in the year, there's actually going to be an entire edition of the magazine, which is just desire. Yes. Yeah. How crazy is that? No pressure. Think GQ style, but with bikes and more Lycra. That's kind of what we're going for. It's going to be really exciting, but it's uh, it's going to be all hands on deck, I think, for this one. But it's going to be a wicked project to be part of. And when's that coming out? That'll be out in May. We've got some wicked locations. We're going out to the Pyrenees, I think, to shoot quite quite a bit of it. So... Yeah, fun times. You'll be ghost hunting in the Pyrenees then. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll find, I'll find out where, where there's somewhere that was haunted. So apart from desire, um, anything else really stand out in nineteen point one for you? Well, one, one thing always stands out for me, and he uh, um, stands out in the peloton. But now he's going to stand out in the magazine. Uh, Roman Bardet is our guest columnist now. How good is that? You're quite a fan of Roman Bardet, aren't you? I am because he looks like a cyclist from the golden age of cycling he's um if you if you made him if you put him in a sepia 
sepia wash over him or, you know, or had him, you know, sat next to Merckx or Onky T or something like that. You've, you've, he, he looks the part. He looks like, he looks like a cyclist from yesteryear. And he's, he's got, he oozes panache, if you ask me. I think he looks class on a bike. But my favourite is when he was in the mountains. When he's in the mountains, it's hot. He unzips his jersey. And, and then, you know, you see that, that bare chest of his. I think that's the sort of, uh, that's why he's one of my favourite riders. I'll tell you who else used to do it. Another French. And I'm afraid we'll have to leave Stuart there alone, not for the first time, with his thoughts about Romain Bardet. And that's it from this podcast. We'll be back soon. Catch you then. Bardet. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.